This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I keep forgetting. I meant to revise that so I don't say that every week and I say something that... We had, we had a whole conversation about this and I completely forgot. We did. Anyway, we'll we did. All his but that means, sorry, Jones. sorry, Waleed, yep. what that means is every time people hear that, they should hear that with an asterisk next to it. <laughs> I don't know that should, auditory we, asterisks work. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we should then refer them back to our second new show of 2022. Oh, wow. We're just... We're referring yeah. back. So now we're doing footnotes. <laughs> we're doing footnotes. That's right. Excellent. That's right. Hey, by the way, um, while we're doing house, <laughs> yes, housekeeping that has nothing to do with the content of the show that we're about to um, launch into. Or, or uh, does it? it? It's time to make an announcement, I think, to the Minefield family. Is that going too far? Call it a family? It probably is. Anyway, um, Scott and I uh, have decided to do, we do this every year. And sometimes it takes and sometimes it doesn't. Let's be honest. We do it with a kind of lukewarm commitment. But we're going to do a special series this year, by which we mean not like a series every week or like for a month or anything like that, although we probably will do the Ramadan series because that's a bit of a tradition. But just to intermittently throughout the year, we will do a an episode of a special type. And what we've decided this year is that we're going to kind of do what is a bit of a minefield book club but not necessarily about books. So about some kind of aspect of pop culture. Could be a television series, could be a film, could be a novel. A book. Could be a work of philosophy or political theory or whatever. Could be an album. Yes. Uh, Could be a ringtone. I don't think I'd get Scott over the line and no one's had ringtones for about 10, 15 years, but it could be. Who knows? And then we will give it the minefield treatment. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like a, um, a book club in the traditional sense where we sit there and just discuss the characters or something like that. We, there would probably be some kind of minefield pretension to it, you know, try to extrapolate some kind of, what is it, ethical or moral dilemma of modern life. <laughs> um, that's what we'll kind of try to do. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this now is that we probably figure it's fair to give you warning, don't we, Scott? I mean, it's not yeah. right that we just spring this... You know, today we talk about the Grapes of Wrath. Um, hope you're ready. Um, we probably need to give you time if you want. I mean, we, we're hoping the shows will be listenable even if you aren't familiar with the material. But mm. if you want to play along, then I suppose you need time. Is there anything I, I've left out there, Scott? Uh, simply to say that, I mean, obviously, you know, we will try to make the, the programs as intelligible as we can, uh, even for those who are uninitiated. Um, however, we do think that hopefully the kind of conversations that we'll be having, the kind of moral insight we'll try to be extracting will be only enhanced if you will have read the book or listened to the album recently or watched the television series. And I think that's just another way of saying that we'll almost certainly have, for want of a better term, spoilers. Uh, we're, we're not yeah, going to yeah. say, you know, and just wait until you see what happens to such and such a character <laughs> in season three. We will simply discuss what, what happens to such and such a character in season three. Yeah. Um, but look, uh, Waleed, I think, I think this is tremendous. There, there is something inherently risky about taking pieces of culture or works of art and subjecting them to something like a degree of of moral scrutiny. Um, because, you know, I mean, D.H. Lawrence, who's a, a writer that I love and hate in, in equal measure, 
you know, he very, very famously, I think rightly said, any time you try to nail a novel down by means of some kind of ethical lesson or moral, mm. the knowledge rips the nail up out of, out of the ground and walks away with it. Mm. Um, I think that's, to some extent, that's, that's probably right. Art very, very rarely tries to be proscriptive or didactic in that kind of explicit well, increasingly sense. Increasingly so, but yeah. Increasingly so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, however, however, if we accept... I think one of the lessons that we did try to extrapolate out of last week's conversation about the over, overuse of moral language, it's probably something like what we often describe as, quote unquote, the moral is actually simply part of what it means to live in a truly human fashion, to live morally and to live o ought to be more or less descriptions of the same thing. And so there, there should be something about the everydayness, the normality or the exceptionality, uh, the virtuosity, the surprisingness of some of the things that we find in popular culture and art that ought to resonate with the best vision of what it means to live in a manner that is uh, informed and inflected by justice and mercy and pity and grace and tenderness. Mm. And so I, I, I think what we're probably going to try to do is it's not so much shedding moral light on novels or albums, but rather to allow these novels or albums or television series to expand, enhance, interrogate our conception of what the moral life might look like. This is, the these place. are wonderful thoughts. I fear it's actually the introduction to the show that we're going to do in a few weeks. But oh, really? Maybe okay. we should just okay. clip that up and play that bit. Anyway, but yes, I think that's well framed, Scott. So this is just to announce before we move into this week's show that we will commence this. We don't know how often we're going to do this, whether it's every month mm. or every three months or whatever. We'll just kind of figure that out. But the first of these episodes will be in the first week of March. Uh, I feel like I'm explaining homework <laughs> assignments. The first week of March, and we will be looking at Succession. So this is the yeah. HBO series that Scott absolutely loves. He put me onto it. I absolutely love it. It's come up in conversations before. We chose it because we figure you, there's a fair chance you've seen it recently, so it's not, it's not a heavy homework burden. But mm. we've given you enough weeks to try to track it down and watch it if you like. And I think you can probably watch it all in a few weeks because it's one of those kinds of shows you will just binge once you get yeah. going. Uh, three seasons only. So, you know. Really? Easy. We're not going to do the... Oh, yeah. Sorry, it is only three. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. I was thinking of a different show. Um, yes. So, Succession. That's your homework. And we will um, commence that series in the, the episode that is in the first week of March. You have been warned. All right, Scott. We have roughly three minutes left for today's show. <laughs> <laughs> Set us on our way. So, look, uh, something that we've been wanting to talk about for a while, Waleed. And I, I, I love that we've been wanting to talk about this. I love that you and I have such a passionate devotion to it. Um, and I love that we're discussing it at a time when news events don't necessarily mean we have to discuss it. It seems to me that that really is the marker of one's passionate devotion to a practice or to a concept or an institution. You know, when the news cycle doesn't demand it, are you prepared to give it your full, your full attention and moral weight anyway? Um, compulsory voting. Uh, we are, of course, at the beginning of an election year. Uh, an election, a federal election has not yet been announced, but it's certainly coming. Um, there's an awful lot not to like about Australia's political culture. Um, I think one of the things that any reasonable observer of Australia's political culture would probably 
want, would probably hope for or wish for, is that maybe slightly more honor. I know it's a strange term, but let me stick with it. Slightly more honor were conferred onto our elected representatives. And we would probably wish that if there was a collective sense or a shared sense that our elected representatives were deserving of that honor. Um, I, I've just uh, let me just say, Walid, I have just finished um, a kind of gargantuan editing effort of uh, the collected writings of uh, a moral philosopher that you and I both love, a, a, a man that we both love, uh, named Raymond Gaeta. And and something that 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 task reminded me of is the appropriateness of speaking about politics as a vocation. Um, not just a profession that one does or an ambition that one has, but something that has certain obligations and certain limits and restraints internal to it and external to it. And so something that if we give politics our proper regard ought to elicit a degree of honor or even sympathy when politicians have to do things that are terrible, but they have to do it in the name of something that transcends a particular, say, moral constraint or moral preference. There is something about that that's awful, but at the same time, it, it ought to elicit something like, something like the sympathy uh, that, that, that attends to a vocation properly carried out. Um, uh, so there's, a, there's plenty in our political life that I think we would wish was better than it is. But one of the things I think that Australia has gotten uncommonly right is the way that we do elections. Um, you and I both think a great deal of Judith Brett's uh, book uh, From Secret Ballot to Democracy yes, Sausage. Fantastic book, it's yeah. tremendous, just a tremendous piece of work. And as she puts it in the final chapter, there's a lot uh, about Australian politics that leaves much to be desired, but elections isn't one of them. Um, and it's that it's the threefold pillar of compulsory voting, compulsory preferential voting, and a nonpartisan uh, um, uh, election administration that has saved Australian democracy from many of the perversions and corruptions that I think we've seen elsewhere. I've, I was just reminded recently, Willie, I'm, I'm sure you saw the same thing that uh, that in the U.S. Senate, an omnibus bill that was supposed to that was supposed to prevent some of the more egregious forms of voter suppression that emerged during the 2020 election. Uh, that was roundly defeated. Um, it, it's, it's incongruous that forms of partisan gerrymandering and active forms of voter suppression or desperate attempts to try to turn one's base out are still so much a part of what many consider to be the world's most advanced democracies. These are all things that we are free from and I guess something that I've been thinking about a lot, and let me just turn it over to you after this, something I've been thinking about a lot is we have these great procedural bulwarks, compulsory voting, compulsory preferential voting, and a nonpartisan election administration that keep many aspects of Australian democracy safe and free from forms of extremism uh, um, and I think other forms of, say, electoral injustice. To what extent... Are those pillars necessary for the cultivation of a healthy democratic culture? To what extent do they, do they provide the context within which a healthy democratic culture can in fact be cultivated? Or have we come to so rely on these procedures, these procedural pillars, 
that we've begun to neglect, and this is something you've been arguing to me, I don't quite agree, but here we go anyway, that we've come to neglect maybe the emergence of certain anti-democratic or undemocratic tensions or sentiments within the Australian body politic. We've kind of left them to fester um, because simply because we put too much confidence, we place too much faith uh, in the capacity of these procedures to keep us safe from the worst forms of, say, anti-democratic populism. So I don't quite know where to begin in answering that. I suppose, uh, let me make a couple of observations. One is mm. I definitely think that these twin pillars of compulsory voting and preferential voting um, provide a, a really effective buffer against some of the worst possibilities of um, of democratic politics as we're seeing them um, unfold in other parts of the world. The United States being mm. the most obvious example, but you could probably survey um, the terrain of Europe and find all kinds of examples as well. Yeah, true. Um, so I'm happy to discuss that more, but let me just say that that is a conviction that I hold for you know reasons um, that I think are borne out um, by history and by current experience. Um, so I agree with that. Um, I believe also that the erosion of democratic culture and the, um, the emergence of anti-democratic politics or politics that are hostile to democracy is something that is a phenomenon that exists outside of the political system of compulsory voting and preferential voting, which is, I think, kind of what you were saying. Mm. And I think that is more to do with our communicative or informational environment, right? So, Interesting. Which we've discussed a lot on this show. I mean, it yep. feels like it comes up every week, right? Um, here, I should probably have the compulsory mention of social media. I should probably have the compulsory mention of the changing business models of journalism, mm. um, increase of... Uh, a, opinion um, and sort of sensationalist opinion over um, straight reporting and more sober kind of analysis, the breakdown of civil discourse that allows us to have a proper engagement with issues rather than sort of the trench warfare, whereby we're really in, much, in a, a much more solipsistic mode, just trying to appeal to our own side and rev them up. Which, by the way, to return to point one, um, or observation one, is one of the key problems I find with... Um, with voluntary voting, yeah. is that you end up in a very solipsistic mode very often um, of electioneering, focus on turnout, etc. Because the first priority is to, and I mean, this is one of the things, I'm, I don't know if you remember we discussed this, Willie, right back in 2016. For me, one of the, one of the omens, one of the harbingers of doom was when I saw uh, successive reporting coming out of the U.S., that it wasn't just a preference of, say, Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, but it was the degree of enthusiasm yep. for Hillary Clinton. As, as, as soon as when – you, when you're that concerned about election turnout, getting your base out, it's not just to have enough to have supporters. You have to have zealous supporters, passionate supporters, which yep. – which necessarily means that the rhetoric has to become immoderate, which means you have to cast your opponents as themselves enemies of, of democratic good governance. Yes. And um, so you fire up the base, basically. Yeah. So it's about enthusing those who are already converted rather than seeking to persuade those who aren't. Now, that said, I think we should acknowledge that even in a, a system like America, everyone seems to agree that the way you campaign in the primaries is very different to the way you campaign in the general. 
and that therefore there clearly is a role for appealing to those who are, I think, in the American parlance, uh, independents. We might call them swinging voters. Um, so clearly it's not like they're irrelevant and it's only about the base. But turnout is a very big factor. And um, the 2016 election was a really interesting case in point because Donald Trump wins that election in what is a very low turnout election. Now, he loses the popular vote, but the point is that he probably doesn't win that election in a high turnout election because um, he, the number of people who were prepared to go along with him at that point, they were very passionate, but they mm. were relatively small in number compared to the, uh, the, the total population in the United States. And so... Um, the, the trick that he was able to pull off there, the thing that made it successful was those who don't particularly like him, he was able to keep away from the ballot box. And you mm. see all this in, you know, the gamification of voter suppression laws um, in the United States and so on. Now, I don't want to rely too heavily on the United States because you can no, fall into right. the, exam the, the, the mistake of critiquing voluntary voting on the basis of one particular expression of it rather than on the idea itself. But nonetheless, um, it's a powerful example. So I raise it there. Can, um, can I just mention, though, what, what one thing, though, that it means that we've been blessedly free from, and I'm, when I say we, I mean Australia's political culture, political history, is that we've never had a disputed or illegitimate election result. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, true. Now, the, there is no, I think, underestimating the moral to say nothing of democratic significance of that. It means that those who lose, they might be unhappy about it. They might feel the degree of injustice over it. How could this, this mendacious, uh, um, uh, corrupt or lazy or inattentive or sort of, you know, whatever, how mm. could this government continue to be voted back in when they adhere to such cruel or retrograde policies? But there's nothing like they won it by cheating or... Uh, uh, or no, although or, can I say, I don't think that's to do with compulsory voting. I think that's to do with an independent electoral commission. Yeah, I think that's probably I right. mean, compulsory voting helps, I guess, because everyone has to turn up. So arguments over who turned up and who didn't, I suppose, are dampened. But I think in the United States case, again, I'm sorry, this magnetic thing that keeps drawing me towards it. Um, in the United States case, I think the real problem is the electoral system is politicised at the state level by governments right. who effectively run. I mean, it's it's not a national election. It's, it's 50 state elections, right? And so mm. um, it's politicised in a way that I think is a real problem. So I, I don't want to overstate these things. I think it's important to understand there are various factors that feed into them. But yes, um, that is something we have been blessedly free from. But to return and, to the sorry, point... I, I, I will just say just, just briefly, Willie, the reason I brought that up is because I think one of the essential virtues of any healthy democratic culture is the ability to lose. Absolutely. And yeah. Australian political parties, for the most part, have no problem losing. And their supporters have no problem losing. You just yeah. you back up, rally the forces, and try again next time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So yes, we've been blessedly free of that. But to return to the, the question I think you were asking, which was really about the influence on democratic culture of compulsory voting. Um, I'm not entirely sure, actually. So I, I think about, for example, the Netherlands experience. So the Netherlands introduced compulsory voting and removed it. And when they got rid of it, what seemed to happen was that voter turnout fell, right? So, so it's not as though they had become habitu so habituated to the practice of compulsory voting that they somehow 
or infused with this civic spirit um, by you know force of habit, um, and a new custom had emerged. Now it could be they weren't doing it for long enough for that to happen, but they returned basically to the mean um, that you get in voluntary voting. Um, Australia might be a different case because we've had compulsory voting for so long and Australians are by and large so proud of it mm. um, that if we were to get rid of it, first of all, we wouldn't because it just would be such an unpopular move. But if we were to get rid of it, perhaps you would find a situation where the voter turnout would remain fairly high because we're just used to turning up. We kind of think that it's something that, that we have to do. It's possible that that's the case because we've, it's been so long and we're now it's, it's become part of our civic DNA. Mm. I am sceptical of that, though. Pe- so, people have pointed, by the way, to the plebiscite, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, yeah. um, which saw 80% turnout even when it was non-compulsory. True, although I think that's very different to an election. Um, I couldn't We could go more. into a lot of discussion on that, but I just don't think it's quite the same thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, that's not an, it's not a trivial thing to observe, I guess I would say. There is something there. So, uh, you know, um, Australian political culture has definitely been influenced, but I think the influence has been primarily on the offering that is presented to Australians at elections because parties know that everyone will be voting. They, they can't hope to prosper through the composition of who turns up. And my point is not that um, that will always change the result of an election, that, you know, a voluntary election would would elect the Liberal Party and a um, compulsory one would elect the Labor Party or something like that. That's not. I, I suspect, actually, if it were to change the result at all, it could go either way. My point is that I think it changes the offering in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that... I think it in deeply influences Australian political culture to that extent, but not to the extent if you were reaching for it, not to the extent of changing the fundamental relationship that Australians have with democracy or something like that in such a way that now we're at a point where compulsory voting or not, it makes no difference because we are these beings that have been formed by this um, custom. I'm just I'm not entirely sure about that. Hmm. Um, should we get to a guest who will set us yes, straight? Yes, please. Great. Yeah. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. You can also catch the podcast uh, because the show exists as a podcast. You can do that anytime you like. So that's on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, Our guest is Paul Strangio. He's Associate Professor of Politics in the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. And providentially, he's also the co-editor with Matteo Bonotti of a wonderful book called A Century of Compulsory Voting in Australia, which was published last year. Paul, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Hi, Scott. Hi, Walid. So, so look, let's, let's begin with, I think, the question or the objection that may well be at the center of what Walid was just saying, which is effectively that one of the things for all of its benefits, for all of its virtues, one of the things that compulsory voting, the knowledge that the vast majority of eligible Australians are going to show up at the ballot box when a federal or state election is called, that one of the things that that does, and this is an objection that one often hears, is that it effectively 
empowers the ignorant and the disengaged, people who have otherwise been paying very, very little attention to politics for an extended period of time. It encourages something like what we might call lowest common denominator politics. In other words, it may well take the edges off something like ambition or political vision, much less long-term policies. And it probably empowers something like, uh, say, presentist or short-term policies, and it kind of flattens out or lowers the quality of political rhetoric altogether. Whereas if the people we had to the ballot box were, say, more engaged, more committed, more tuned in news consumers, it may well elevate the quality of the character of political rhetoric, and it may well lead to better, more progressive policies. What do you, what, what do you think of that objection? Well, it's one of the three major objections, if you like, and to compulsory voting. And, and the three are that, one, it's a violation of the right not to vote. Um, it's an unwarranted incursion on individual liberty. Another interesting one, because compulsory voting has been almost a platform under our political parties, is that Compulsory voting indeed has a debilitating effect on those political parties because they're not required to mobilise the vote. The argument is that those political parties have grown lazy, they've been hollowed out, they don't need the number of members out there to mobilise voters as, in, as per primaries and so on. And yes, the third argument is that election results are decided by the apathetic, the uninterested, those only driven to vote by compulsion. So it becomes a, a lowest common denominator form of politics. Uh, on that third argument, I suppose we have to compare Australian politics to other places which have voluntary voting. And I, I don't sense there's evidence that Australian politics is in any way a more a lowest common denominator form of politics than, for example, in the United States or in Britain or in New Zealand or in Canada or all those Anglophone countries which we like to compare ourselves, and they are all voluntary um, voting systems. It's one of the interesting things to note, one of the things that's most distinctive that we are alone among those Anglophone countries in having compulsory voting. Indeed. Well, what are there, maybe a dozen countries in the world that do it? Uh, a few more than that. Well, it's interesting. We were trying to work that out when we were putting our book together. There's around 20 to 30 countries, around 15% of democracies that have compulsory voting. A lot of them are in Latin America, interestingly enough. Mm. But it's always difficult to be precise because the calculation's complicated because in around half of the countries where compulsory voting exists, it exists in name only. It's not enforced. And again, Australia is distinctive in that sense because we do enforce it. Um, electoral authorities enforce it, albeit leniently, and the courts have traditionally and consistently upheld the regime. I think what's interesting, at the risk of it going on a tangent here, I think what's interesting about the objection that it's the disengaged who decide these things is that it presupposes that the engaged will make better decisions necessarily. <laughs> Now, it may well be true that they will on occasion or on some issues make better decisions, but there is a whole other limb, I guess, to the argument in favour of democracy. I mean, there's, you know, consent of the governed, representation, all those things. But there is another limb that is to do with the wisdom of crowds, right? And this, this sort of idea that even if each individual within a crowd is not especially uh, informed, 
or highly engaged or whatever, once you aggregate all these people, they become more discerning, more intelligent than even the most brilliant person. I've heard this argument made by barristers, for example, when talking about a jury. It's, it, you know, a jury is impossible to fool. A very intelligent person you can fool, right? Um, I find, you know, I don't want to take that too far. Juries have to be engaged, I suppose. But I, I think there's something interesting in unpacking those underlying assumptions. What do you think there is to be said, Paul, for this idea that a large number of disengaged people can nonetheless make very good decisions. Yeah, when you um, talk about that, uh, Waleed, it brings to mind one of Bob Hawke's axioms, and he colloquially said that the voters always get it right, that if actually analyse election results across the broad history of Australia, that voters have always come down on the right side. And that was a partisan Labourite, but he believed you could actually discern that. So I, I um, actually think there's a lot of truth in that that notion that the majority in the end, there is a wisdom deeply entrenched within them and that if we were to have elections and voluntary system which were more partisan, if you like, um, that a level of common sense would come out of the system. I think when we think about compulsory voting too, it's interesting that it's not just why it has a moderating effect, because that's one of the major arguments. It has a moderating effect, and among those who make that point are Scott Morrison and uh, Barnaby Joyce. They're two supporters of compulsory voting. Morrison, for example, has said if we were to ban compulsory voting, we would leave our democracy hostage to the extreme of both sides of politics. But I'm, I'm not convinced it's just compulsory voting which moderates elections. I think it's more broadly about the temperament of Australians, a pragmatic temperament, one that's always been averse to doctrinaire ideas, so I think there's broader explanations there. Really? So you think if Australians didn't have compulsory voting and didn't have preferential voting, which I suspect is actually the bigger moderating factor because it turns mm. it into a two-party system rather than sort of more fractured and, systems and, and you have should, And we should note that there have been actually proposals to do away with um, yeah. preferential system, at least to have optional preferential systems. And many people have said that's a slippery slope to getting rid of or undermining compulsory voting. Yeah. Well, yes, and maybe that's true. But I, the, the preferential thing to me prevents the sort of weird, frequently shambolic coalition forming that happens in a lot of European parliaments. Um, your view would be then, Paul, I take it, that absent those things, Australia simply wouldn't look like what we've seen in other countries where some quite extreme parties find their way into a power-sharing arrangement in government, for example, or get you know up to 20% of the vote or something like that, simply because mm. of the Australian temperament? You don't think that would happen? Yeah, I think there's a certain truth to that. Um, historians, some like Stuart McIntyre, said the centre holds better in Australia. We've tended always to gravitate to the political centre. Um, as I said, Australians are renowned as being practical-minded, commonsensical. We also have a long and deep tradition of parliamentary democracy. Parliamentary democracy took root from the middle of the 19th century without revolution. We developed democratic systems precociously, the winning of the secret ballot, manhood suffrage, later universal suffrage. We do democracy well, and yet we're very modest about it. We don't build monuments to our democratic traditions or our leaders. There's a sort of 
of, I think, lackadaisical yet abiding commitment to the institutions of democracy. And you said it before, it's something in our collective DNA. And I think also the strength of the traditional two-party major system has largely corralled Australian politics into the middle ground, the centre-left and the centre-right. But isn't that exactly what we're seeing break down? Like, you know, a skyrocketing informal vote, um, the two party, the two major parties, you could even say the coalition and Labor, if you want to include the yeah. three parties. Their primary vote is falling to historic levels, both of them. Like the idea of a two-party system that genuinely reflects the political sympathies of Australians is really crumbling now. It's eroding. I concede that point. It is eroding. It's not eroding as quickly as in other democracies around the world, for example, on identification with the major parties. It still holds up pretty well in Australia compared to other places. This is I find this really interesting because because this for me goes directly to the question of political culture. There's a there's a political philosopher who I, I quite love named George Kateb, who said that the, the the central defining constitutive idea that's at the heart of American political culture is what he calls democratic individuality, um, and democratic individuality is what allows the United States to produce something like monsters, but also virtuosos. Anything, any foreign interference, any uh, anything like a central government that anyway squashes or somehow uh, urges individuals to conform to a particular notion or practice or habitual way of being, anything like that uh, is kind of instinctively raged against by this principle of individuality. The only thing that then tempers that is the adjective democratic. In other words, at certain crucial points the thing that is crucial, the thing that is indispensable for the realization of one's own ambitions, one's own goals, is the presence of other, uh, of other similarly democratic individuals. I think what's, what's curious to me is, I mean, how poorly that fits, that maps on to a place like Australia, where, where I think the pulse of the nation, the pulse of the political culture is broadly utilitarian. The, 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 mm. the government is, is not an oppressor, but it's a public utility. And I think this is what we've witnessed over the last two years. When the chips were down, when, when acquiescence was required, when rule following was needed, we basically did it because we didn't think that the government at state or federal levels were trying to dupe us, were trying to have anything over us. So I think this broad culture that sees governments, however much we might hold certain politicians in disdain, that sees it fundamentally as a kind of utility, that, I mean, there's something about that, that yes, it produces things that I think in many respects we wish it didn't, a kind of, well, I don't want to go into that, but 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 there is a oh, kind of- Oh, come on. You can't no, do no, that. No, 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 no. No, no, but, but I think there's, the, there's something about the broad utilitarian temperament and the extent to which Australians tend to view political representatives as, roughly speaking, benevolent or at least as, as non-malevolent or not as bad actors. I think there's something about that but, but isn't that's that, absolutely isn't, vital. On that, though, yeah, I, I see the point. But on that, isn't John Hurst's explanation the most powerful of that? Which is really that Australia, and by which we really mean the settler state of Australia, was not a people that then formed a government. Yeah, it, that's it, right. It was a settlement of government. So yeah, there was there was government always yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, and it arrived on That's the right. boat, right? And mm. we're a paid colony. Yeah. Um, well, uh, no, I think he called it. Oh, what did Hurst call it? 
He, he objected to penal colony because he said, no, that the, the punishment wasn't happening once you were here. It was a colony of convicts. But it, anyway, I don't want to get into that because I've forgotten his point and I don't, there's no point in me rep- misrepresenting it now. But the, the thing that's interesting about that is that it came with an idea of government formed, but also as a settler state, government was required to establish everything of it. Like you wanted a road, government had to do it. You wanted courts, government had to do that from scratch. It was, in other words, very different from a situation like the United Kingdom from which it got its inheritance, whereby kind of what Burke might have called little platoons um, or, you know, the sort of self-organising things at the community mm. level would happen and then over time government had to evolve as a way of kind of making it coherent. Australia wasn't that at all, which means that the role of government in Australia is just paradigmatically completely different. Without government, Australia as we know it now does not exist. That, that, that can't be said of the United States. It can't be said um, of the United Kingdom. And Judith Brett makes that very point to understand why compulsory voting found, if you like, such conducive territory in Australia because of that. And to go back to Scott's point, but she also juxtaposed the foundational ideas of the again, using the United States as the alternative, that it was founded, it derived its foundational ideas from John Locke with primacy on individual Mm. natural rights, whereas Australia was settled at a time of the flowering, the ideas of Jeremy Bentham and the fundamental axiom, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So there's a rejection of the idea of natural or divine rights coming before the interests of the majority. Um, And then that's reinforced, that majoritarian impulse, by heavy reliance on government in colonial times, governments necessary to provide economic infrastructure and so on. And all this is deeply embedded. And which, of course, is why one of the great struggles in Australia's political history, because of its majoritarian impulse, because of its majoritarian resting pulse, has been preserving and safeguarding the rights, the well-being of minorities. And it's, it, it's one of the reasons why I continue to suspect that anything like a Bill of Rights could, could simply, uh, I don't know, there's something, there's something about that that just doesn't quite take root here in the same way. It cuts across the grain, the majoritarian grain, sort of too, too harshly, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, but we are a common law country as well. Yeah, and yeah, true. And one of the things about the common law, I mean, those who speak lovingly of the common law say the genius of it is that it isn't making policy at a level, a general level. It's Mm. the evolution of legal norms through the resolution of individual disputes. And so by doing that, it creates all kinds of very important and subtle principles that form the bedrock of the guaranteeing of certain rights. Um, Now, you can query whether or not the common law is capable of standing up to the onslaught of the state in a sort of security age, which I think is a very real question. The apparatus of the state now is just so much more than was ever the case in common law history. But I I wouldn't want to say it's purely majoritarian, I guess, is my point, Scott. That mm. there, we've always had these mechanisms um, to try to, I guess, arrest the power of the majority at certain points in time. One of the Agreed. things, though, that seems implicit in this, Paul, and I don't know if this is damning Australia or maybe just damning it with faint praise. Oh, I really don't know. Um, it's an observation a politician once made to me, just in a text message. He said, the thing about Australia is it's not an ideas country. 
it's mm. it's an experience country or I can't remember the exact phrase that the politician used, but like if kind of the pragmatism point. That is to say, arguments based on abstract principle do not work in Australia. Mm. What works is, yeah, based on how I've what I've been through and seen in my life, that seems about right. I don't need to reason it any more than that. I don't need to have some kind of overarching theory of consistency that ties this all together and makes it coherent. It's just what what I reckon based on what I've done and seen. That may be another way of explaining the sort of political moderation that you're talking about, but it doesn't strike me as a particularly loving explanation of this. <laughs> I, th- I think this politician actually meant it as a compliment, but it, it strikes me as something that would be a grounds for criticising the Australian people just as much as praising them. Well, well and, and it obviously can be um, this notion that Australians, well, I think that there's a sort of complexity or paradoxical nature to it because at one level, for example, this sort of scepticism and irreverence to our politicians and yet this reliance on them uh, that beats underneath it all. I suppose what's the opposite is, you know, the notion that ideas actually can be dangerous in politics as well and that taken to extreme levels. Um, so a natural scepticism towards ideas. And I, I don't know if we're totally averse to ideas in Australian politics, um, but there is that inbuilt scepticism. That is the voice of Paul Strangio. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield is a professor of politics at Monash University. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. So I, I, I agree that there is a kind of aversion to ideas, and I think it does cause us occasionally to run aground when it comes to ideas or certain demands of justice or of equality that rely on foundational or fundamental principles. And so it's, it seems to me that if, if we regard Australia's political culture safeguarded by these three pillars as being fundamentally healthy. Sorry, what are the three? Uh, so compulsory voting, preferential voting. Yeah and then a nonpartisan election administration. Right, okay. If we regard those as sort of, even if, even if people don't think we're fundament, our political culture is fundamentally healthy, at least we've been saved from some of the worst excesses. And I do agree with both of you that I think there is kind of this fundamental utilitarianism. Does it work? Does it make people's lives better? that beats beneath it all. And the kind of benign view of government is basic, basically a, a utility. Nonetheless, it does seem to me that there is a kind of genius in the practice that we ought to begin extrapolating out the ideas or the values that attend to that practice. So can I just, can I put something to, to the two of you? You can tell me if I'm completely bonkers here, but I, I think about it all the time. So if we take the genius that happens when you put together compulsory voting with preferential voting. It means that even people that you think are disengaged are taking part in the same election. People who mightn't have thought about this anywhere near as much as you have, and yet their vote counts every bit as much as yours does. 
And the very fact that you go into that booth and you're not making an absolute decision, this is the only side that can guarantee Australia's future. If this side gets in power, if they have the balance of power, if they sit on the crossbench, then we're all doomed. The very fact that you have to try to see your own vote through the eyes of people that mightn't have your same convictions or your same level of engagement. There's a kind of enforced act of radical sympathy that goes into every act of voting. So it's not just the ideal that I want. It's also what's achievable. It's also what compromise mightn't be exactly what I want, but may well nonetheless be palatable. In other words, there's an act of, there's an act of shared sympathy. There's an act of, of, of fellow feelingness that goes mm-hmm. into every act of or, shared voting. Or resentment. Don't you think? Well, that's just it. When it's not extrapolated out to the level of principle, to the level of idea, this is what you're doing and this is why it's a good thing. It may well be resentment. I'm having to settle for something I don't believe in. I don't think these people are good for anything. And this is what I'm having to swallow, even though, I mean, compulsory voting undergirt by resentment, I think, can be catastrophic. It can lead to widespread disengagement or even resorting to forms of non-political mobilization, non-democratic mobilization. That's why I think extrapolating out from the genius of bringing together preferential and compulsory voting as having to see the outcome through the eyes of other people, not just what's palatable, but also what's possible. There is something about that that I think is fundamentally democratic, but also democratically idealistic if we just had the words, had the proper rhetoric to be able to extrapolate out. Am I I floundering here? Yeah, do you think that is what happens in practice? Well, I was just going to say one thing to note straight away is that Australians don't resent compulsory voting. They don't resent turning up to the polls every three years. What we know is Mm. that they actually, they embrace it. Every published opinion poll, the Australian election study shows that around 70% of Australians support compulsory voting. Moreover, when asked if they would vote if we will move to a voluntary system, around 80% say, yes, I would still vote. So they don't they don't certainly resent that act. Um, on your broader point, Scott, I'm, you know, I'm really not quite sure. I, I think Judith Brett was trying to get to it in in the title of her book, the notion of community, the democracy sausage. That there's something deeply communitarian about elections in Australia um, that fascinates me. Yeah, just thinking about what you just said there though, about resentment, Paul. So. I think it's true. Australians don't re- resent compulsory voting. Absolutely true. They they do resent stupid voters who don't pay attention and come to the wrong conclusion and are the reason that this mob's in power. They do How resent do they that. Man- that manifest that resentment? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. I think I, I will admit what I'm saying is impressionistic and maybe it's based too much on popular expression or popular. But the number of times I hear things like, oh, God, if we could just excise North Queensland or Western (laughs) Sydney or something like that, right? Or, you know, I mean, I saw this in the United States as well, so maybe it's not a great example for compulsory voting point, but, you know, comparing average IQs of regions that voted one way or another or bringing out a a vox pop 
on some show that a comedian might be fronting where someone says something completely bonkers and the punchline is something along the lines of, and this person votes. Um, yeah, but that's all terrible, Willie. That, no, this, I'm not, I'm not defending it. I'm just no, saying that, I, that, that happens. I know you're not defending it, but, 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 but this, is, this is why. This is why the practice that is most corrosive or the, the disposition that is most corrosive to healthy democracy is contempt where even though these same people are thrown into the same booth, they are unworthy of that vote. They, yes, but my point is that sentiment is clearly present, right? So the, so the idea everything that, about our democratic education, everything about the way that we try to extrapolate out from practice to idea, everything about that should militate, should war against that tendency, right. whatever it is, I'm merely addressing the contempt point, or resentment. I'm merely addressing the point you're making, which is, that compulsory voting somehow creates these solidaristic bonds between voters. Uh, maybe it does, but I see evidence of the opposite. No, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually not saying something as highfalutin as that. What I'm saying is, is that compulsory voting with preferential voting equals the great democratic virtue of embracing the next best thing. In, in an age of anger and absolutism, that's no small feat. Hmm. Sorry, this is just the sound of me thinking. It's not a great sound for radio, is it? <laughs> I apologise. Um, Paul, I will actually, Paul, I'll give you the chance to respond because I wanted to move on to something. Well, I was just to go back to one of the opening points. Has there ever been an election in Australia which has been viewed as illegitimate? And um, Scott noted to be no Australians it shrugged their shoulders except election results. Um, again, shrugged their shoulders, I think, is the precise way to think about that. The only case in point I can think of is in 1975 or after That's right. dismissal. That's right. Many Labourites felt something illegitimate had happened, and yet nonetheless they knuckled down. Hmm. Um, and led by Gough Whitlam, who was a great adherence to parliamentary democracy, um, there was no attempt to dispute that election result. So, again, there's this, this is this deep commitment, if you like, to the democratic traditions of the country. And again, I think we're very cavalier about that. Mm. Maybe it can only survive because we're cavalier about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, well to really? some degree, I think that there's a truth in that. Yeah. There's a, there actually is a truth in that. It's part of this almost alchemy mm. um, in the way that our system has evolved and I think the different component parts. We've kept on talking about the way what are the foundational points. In other ways, we've combined preferential voting with proportional voting mm. for upper houses and preferential voting for lower houses. It's another part of that interesting alchemy of the Australian electoral system and our political system. One final thought. If what we're saying is Australia has a either unique or, or unusual political culture that is born of pragmatism, born of perhaps a lack of excessive passion, um, ideological passion, all of these sorts of things. That there's a kind of inherently moderating culture that exists in Australia. Then are we having a conversation about compulsory voting at all? Does any of Australia's successes, such as you want to sign up to them, do any of them have things to say about compulsory voting? Or are we really just saying these are the features of Australian political culture? Well, that's an interesting question. Does compulsory voting come first or is compulsory voting a product of that, that political culture? And I think there's an argument either way. 
um, that, again, it's part of that alchemy that it fits very sympathetically with that temperament, but it also reinforces it. Hmm. Last word to you, Scott. I mean, there are perversions and corruptions of moderation, aren't there? It does mean that there is a certain privilege given to what is known over what is just. It means there's a certain privilege given to proximity over and against otherness. Um, it means when high moments of principle or, let's say, uh, shared moral decision-making or calls to moral seriousness are impressed upon the nation, uh, oftentimes, say, on the issues surrounding terrorism or the treatment of asylum seekers, it means that oftentimes those calls can fall on deaf ears. But I think for all of that, it just means that the political culture needs to be addressed and needs to be inhabited in ways that embody, I mean, I actually like your description of kind of cavalier, Waleed, but but at the same time, I guess no, what no, I that was Paul's, is, don't credit me. Oh, uh, Paul, okay. Are there moments, are there opportunities for a kind of virtuosity within the constraints, within the moderateness of Australia's political culture that can call us all together to moments of shared decision that break, if you like, with what is known, with what is near, with what is accepted. Um, and that, that, that for me, I mean, I wouldn't trade what we have, I think, for much of anything, but whether or not there is that possibility, that remains to be questioned. Well, we've got a whole election campaign coming up at some point in the near future, Scott, and you'll be able to see what the results of that test are. Hey? How about that? Mm. That'd be fun for everybody. Paul, thank you so much for speaking to us today. We've been wanting to do this topic for a long time, so it's been great to have you on. Thank you. Paul Strangio is Professor of Politics in the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. He also supports an excellent football team, but Scott won't let him talk about that on this show. <laughs> That's it from us uh, on The Minefield this week. Just a reminder, our show, which we'll be looking at succession, will happen in a few weeks, the first week of March. So get watching if you want to join what is our excuse for a book club uh, on The Minefield. But we'll see you next week with something else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.